0: It is so rich, it is so profound. Uh, You can understand there's one advantage that we have with our growth groups is to get in there and dig in there and, and sort of like when you look at a diagram of a machine, you see an exploded view and you can get to see those cogs and those parts differently than you would if you just step back and look at the entire machine. We need to have both of those rhythms in our lives where we step back and look at the whole argument that Paul is trying to make and then also step in there and get a little bit more detailed and so that rhythm between the sermons and the growth groups I hope you've been enjoying that rhythm but as you've been moving through these first 11 chapters of Romans uh you I hope your uh your not only has your mind been a little bit blown but your heart as well as you wrestle with the idea that God isn't who you necessarily thought he was he lays out really big items here that romans forces you to grapple with that maybe growing up you weren't forced to grapple with or a cursory reading of the bible didn't force you to grapple with he's he's bringing big issues for instance the state of the world the wickedness of the world is because of man's rebellion against god and that as man rebels against god he sometimes hands people over And when he does that, they get worse. And you can look around and go, man, I think that's describing our nation. (laughs) I think that's describing this world that I live in. Why is it so crazy? Even to the point of nonsense. There are are any number of genders. You can pick whatever you want. I mean, we can just pick a, a number of issues to just go, even a decade ago, we would have just been like, what? Wait, what? And this is the world we live in now. And Paul lays it out. Here's why. There's wickedness out there. And just when you start to feel a little smug and go, yeah, they're wicked, he's like, and so would you be. You have no right to judge them. You're in the same boat except for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God. And then he starts going into this whole plan that God has laid out this entire time where he picked one man, Abraham, and because he had faith, he assigned and accredited righteousness to that man. Well, that man eventually had a people, an ethnic people we call Israel, and he doesn't want them to be cocky, going like, yeah, because I'm ethnic, ethnically Jewish, I'm in. He's like, no, if you don't have faith, you're out. And that's why so many Gentiles have been pouring in. Then he turns the guns on the Gentiles. You remember back in the, our last passage where he says, but you can't be arrogant either. Because if, if ethnic Jews don't make it just because they're ethnic, you're definitely not going to make it just because you're not ethnic Jewish. And so he wants to remove pride from the skin you wear. And place it to the grace that you receive and so he's in this entire world of lostness these dead trees and dead branches and dead shrubbery all that is going on its way to to be burned up in the middle of that garden if you will there's one tree of faith that grows and those who try to cling to that tree outside of faith get lopped off. Those branches get lopped off. And then he takes other branches that didn't belong to the tree, and he grafts it in like a master gardener. And all of it is by God's mercy. All of it is by God's mercy. Not one ounce of it is our resume. And we've seen that in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. I tell you, if we don't let that hit us directly between the eyes, we'll go through all of Romans, and we still won't get that. We still won't get it. And one of the reasons why is because that's not the kind of God I would imagine. The kind of God I would imagine is a God that gives everybody a fair shot. Why should the gospel go to some people and the gospel doesn't go to other people? I mean, when we saw that, was that unclear in the text? It's not unclear in the text. It's unclear in our hearts and in our minds because it's hard for us to grapple with a God who doesn't operate the way we think he should operate. Not too long ago, I watched the video. I was going to send it to those of you who are in the CFC course, but I ended up, I didn't want to overload you with videos and wasn't exactly online with the things that we've talked about. But there's a debate on a podcast called Unbelievable between a rabbi. A reform rabbi, so not orthodox, uh, very liberal. And, and, and then Michael Brown, who's a Messianic Jew and serves as an apologist, uh, goes around the world, has his own radio station, all this kind of thing, and they're sitting at a table debating whether Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you think you're going to listen to this podcast and listen to an hour of evidence that Jesus is the Messiah or evidence that he's not the Messiah, probably 80% of the discussion was, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah because, coming from the rabbi, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah because if I were God, I wouldn't do that. No, that's, that's his argument. And then he, tur- he keeps turning it on, on, on Dr. Brown. Why would God do that? Why would God send a man and he died and that, well, supposedly he resurrected? So what? The world is still a mess. So what the resurrection? If I did it, I would do it so that A, B, and C. Why did he come, start stuff, and then leave? Why are we still waiting for him to return and, and bring rain and peace over everything? I wouldn't do that. I would just come the first time and lay it all out the first time. And at some point, rightly, Michael Brown said, well, that's really nice that that's what you would do. But we're not here to discuss what you, what you would do or what I would do, but what has God done? And I tell you, most of our theology where it goes bad, it goes bad because we start with how would a perfect God in my mind be perfect? If God is love, what does love look like to me, and then let me shape and fashion God down into my conception of love, rather than standing back and letting Scripture tell me what God is like, tell me what love is. You'll remember back in Exodus chapter 20 when God laid out the Ten Commandments. We call it the Decalogue, the ten words, the ten top ten rules. God's top ten rules, that doesn't mean he doesn't have other rules, but these top ten represent everything else, pretty much everything else in the law. We get overwhelmed with, oh my goodness, there's hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. How could anyone have ever memorized all of them? Well, you don't start with memorizing them, you start with memorizing the top ten and then seeing how everything else flows from those ten. So when it's laid out in Exodus 20, first you get the two tables of the law. The first table are laws that have to do with our vertical relationship with God. And then the second table of the law have to do with our horizontal relationship with people. So if you know the Ten Commandments, you know that that's the progress of those Ten Commandments. But then, as soon as he's done laying out those ten, now he starts going into the individual laws. And the first one he goes into, you're not even out of Exodus 20 yet is how to shape an altar. When you come and worship me, God says, you know how you're supposed to shape an altar? Is you don't. Don't shape it. Don't take human tools to it. Don't fashion it. Don't try to make it look how you think an altar should look because your hearts are already in a place where you want to shape and fashion me into something that I'm not. That is the second commandment. The first commandment is no other gods. The second commandment is no shape or image or something that you can manipulate to make me look like something you want to worship. When they built the golden calf, you remember, they said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. They didn't say, forget the God that brought us out of Egypt, let's worship something else. They said, Moses went up into the mountain. He hasn't come back down yet. we got to worship this God, but he's too invisible. He's too immaterial. He's too distant. He doesn't communicate as often as we'd like him to communicate. The prophet hasn't come down in the timeline that we have God on. So let's, let's take all of our earrings, melt them, shape it into, I don't know what, a calf. Let's do a calf. Now, I don't know why they chose that, but that's what they chose and when they looked at that calf and danced around it, they proclaimed, this is the God that brought us out. That's commandment number two, which of course makes them break commandment number one because that's not the right God. And I tell you, we are in danger of breaking the first two commandments when we begin our theology, begin our understanding of things with what we want, what we can stomach about God. That that doesn't doesn't sound like How many times have you heard, you're talking to somebody about theology, that doesn't sound like my God. God wouldn't be like that. Nope. God wouldn't be like that. Okay. Why don't we start with Scripture and let Scripture tell us what God is like. Talk to me about nouns and verbs. Theologians uh, talk about it. You find this out. first, First year of Bible school, you'll find out the difference between exegesis, and eisegesis. Fancy sounding words that just mean X means to take out, like exit, exodus. Exegesis is when you want to look at a passage and take meaning out of it. There's meaning in there, and I'm extracting it. Eisegesis means to put in meaning. And we take passages, we're like, that doesn't quite fit what I think it should be. I'm going to read it this way. And what we're doing with God's texts, with God's Scripture, is fashioning it like Israel was tempted to do with those altars in Exodus 20. And what God is saying is, make the altar, but don't shape the altar. And as we approach Scripture, we want to say, God, we want to worship you. I want to know what you say. I want your words to tell me who you are. I don't want to tell you who I think you should be. And none of us does that overtly. We don't open up the Bible in the morning, we're having our quiet time and you've got your cup of coffee or whatever and you sit in your favorite chair and you open up scripture and you don't start with, okay, what am I going to insert into scripture today? Let's see. I mean, we don't don't do it on purpose. It's just that when scripture hits you between the eyes, you're like, that doesn't seem like the God that I pre-imagined must mean something else. And so we kind of just glaze past it to our favorite verses that sound like the God that we've decided is the God. And so we pick and choose the verses that make us comfortable. We gravitate toward the portions of scriptures that already match our conception of who God is. And if you've been walking with us through Romans 1 through 11, it's got to hit you between the eyes because we all do that. (laughs) He wouldn't give Israel the warning about shaping the altars if he didn't know that they, they already had this predilection. They, a, a proclivity, a leaning, their broken alignment will always steer into an altar-shaping form of worship. And I tell you, the danger of bad theology isn't just immaturity or the danger of a lack of theology because you're like, ah, everybody's arguing, nobody knows, free will or this or that, Ugh. I just want to worship a simple Jesus. There is no simple Jesus. and You might be in danger of worshiping a false Jesus if you don't let Scripture do its work on you. For 11 chapters, Paul is laying down difficult things. You, may, you Don't feel bad. You remember when Peter told his audience, you know, Paul writes some stuff. <laughs> I'm an apostle. Uh, I spend time with Jesus. Paul didn't. But Paul writes some stuff, I don't even know what he's talking about. They're hard to understand. Not impossible. Peter doesn't say it's impossible to understand. Peter's just like, look, I'm a fisherman. (laughs) Paul is highly educated. And some of the things that he puts out there, he doesn't say they're false or they're untrue. And he doesn't say, don't study them, don't worry about it. He just concedes, hey, it's hard. So if you feel like Romans 1 through 11 is difficult, great. Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't it be difficult? If we're worshiping God, should I already have pretty much figured out who he is so that every sermon is like, yeah, I had that one. Yep, that that totally fits my system. Shouldn't it break our system sometimes? If he's bigger than we are, of course it should. And before Paul gets into the applicational stuff, which is wonderful in 12 through 16, he starts applying it to our lives and how we respond to the government and our lives within the church how we treat one another in the church, all these kinds of things he's going to get into, he wants to lay down theological groundwork first. And as he moves from the theological groundwork to the application stuff, he's got this little in-between passage just to remind us the foundation of theology comes first before we apply it. You don't know even what you're applying unless you've got the theology straight. And So Romans 1 through 11 is the foundation for Romans 12 through 16, and this in-between passage is reminding us, yes, it's difficult Because he's God and we're puny, tiny human beings who need to be reminded that we cannot shape or fashion God into what we think he is. Look at verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 verse 33. Let's look at the first couple verses there. And he just finished, I mean, verse thirty. just look at verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Just right there. We could just have a series of growth groups just on that line. But everybody is in this boat, Gentiles, Jews, every ethnicity. And then he extracts from there by mercy. Is that deep? Is it hard to understand election? Is it hard to understand depravity? Is it difficult to understand God's saving ways? Yes, and he says so. And then verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We're going to pause there because we're just going to unpack some of these terms. So we can come to grips with, we don't know everything. We don't know everything. Oh, the depth of the riches. Oh, the depth of the wisdom. Oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. Not our knowledge of him, but his knowledge, his wisdom. These are his riches. And they are not shallow, they are deep. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. If you just look at that first line, of course, this can be applied to all of God's wisdom and all of God's knowledge, but why is he putting it here? Some scholars think this is a hymn that they would have known. Maybe they sang it, someone else wrote it, Paul is channeling it or quoting it. Maybe Paul wrote it, we don't know. But why is he putting it here? He's putting it here because their hearts and their minds are completely blown by Romans 1 through 10. As are ours. (laughs) And just when we're at that cusp of giving up, like, ah, God is difficult. He has wrath, but but he has mercy. He should judge all of us, but he doesn't judge all of us according to our works. Some of us are folded into this plan of Jesus Christ, and that's, that's deep. But why not everybody? Why me? Why not her? Why not him? You remember when Job asked God those kinds of questions? Why? Why do I suffer? These guys don't suffer. I did good. They didn't do as good as me, but I'm suffering. I lost my family. And God's answer was, it puts a little lump in your throat, but it it wasn't. He didn't really condescend to the point of giving him the answers that he wanted. The details. He doesn't give him details except I'm God, you're not. And then what was Job's response? Well, then that's not good enough for me. It's I'm going to shut my mouth now. And so what Paul is saying is don't be tempted to give up on theology, to give up on God, or to give up on discovering who God is and instead switch to a lane where we fashion God into who we want him to be. As tempting as that might be, that's not real relief. It's, It's a farce. It's fantasy land. You're in a place where you're lacking truth. That doesn't mean we can know all of it. That doesn't mean we can get to the bottom of the depths. But it does mean that it's too deep for us to get to the bottom of. Anyone who tells you, I've got you know, election and mercy, I've got it all figured out. I have it all figured out. Come over to my house. I'll answer every single question you have because I completely understand. Well, that person's completely deceived or is a deceiver, or both. Because even Paul is not saying how deep it is except for me. I know you puny Christians that are kind of new at this, and even Peter himself, he can't understand the depth of it, but I can understand the depth of it. No. Paul knows more than I do, and Paul still is like, this is, I I cannot see the bottom of this thing. It is deep, the depth of the riches and wisdom in knowledge of God. The danger with theology or understanding, trying to understand Scripture, is when I take my wisdom and I try to fit the things that God does underneath my wisdom. It doesn't work. That's why we so quickly hit mystery and question marks when we think about who God is and what he's done. That doesn't mean everything are question marks. No, we study. If it didn't matter, doctrine didn't matter. Why did he pen Romans 1 through 11? Of course it matters and he wants them to read it in their churches and study it and unpack it but we can never presume that we can get to the bottom of it figure all of it out the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god are too deep for us to plumb the bottom of they are unsearchable his judgments his decisions that he makes are unsearchable his ways how he goes about especially this plan of salvation because that's the context here are inscrutable. You can't scrutinize it or analyze it or unpack it or make a blueprint of it and stick it in a manila folder and be like, I got it, I got it, here's the diagram. Because it's too big for that. You can take a really simple drawing and take a pretty transparent sheet of paper and put it on top and start tracing that drawing and get it pretty exact. But if you try to do that with like a Monet, whatever rendering you came up with, it might be factual with regard to some of the contours of the painting, but you can't capture the painting because tracing can't do it. And some translations take inscrutable and say untraceable. They're unsearchable, untraceable, inscrutable. You can't fully analyze it because his ways are that much more above our ways. He is rich with wisdom. He is rich with knowledge. They are unsearchable. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are are inscrutable. We can't know it fully. And channeling Isaiah in verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? You know, the... The depth of his ways and his judgments um, and his counsel, his mind. Uh, he has put things here for us to investigate and look at, to get to know things about him. You remember that back in the early portion of Romans. What about people who don't have scripture? Paul says, well, they have creation. And from creation, they deduce that he has divine attributes and he's glorious and he's this divine creator. There are things you can understand about God just from nature, even without the Bible. And I love that he uses the word depth in the beginning of verse 33 because we're really excited about space exploration and getting to Mars and can we kind of terraform it and live there? You know, what can we do with Mars? And now you got, forget NASA, you got like. Rich people, like, I got so much money, I'm going to go in space. I'm going to take Willem Shatner, too. It would be cool. Star Trek. This is the day we live in. Like, I don't want to say random people, but just, ah, I'm going to go in space. Then I, I, I looked up. <laughs> how much of the ocean is unexplored? According to one government website, 80% of the ocean is uncharted, unmapped, unexplored. 80% of not a rock out there, right here. Just last year, they discovered a new shark. Are you kidding me? Just last year, in 2021, a bioluminescent kite fin shark that grows up to six feet long, they found it off the coast of New Zealand, they like, we've never seen this before. New species, not new, new to us, because it's a deep sea dweller and we don't go down there. We, we, we we're pontificating about Big Bang and how God created all this. We don't even know what's in front of us right here. We've checked, all the fo- we checked the fossils. There's so much there we have not accessed yet. And in our arrogance, we figured out the timeline and when things happen, and we can figure out, given the rate of things, when the earth is going to be destroyed. You don't know much at all. And just as we don't know everything about what God has put in front of us in this physical realm to discover Him through natural revelation, we don't know everything there is to know even about special revelation, which is Scripture. This is why you can study it your entire life for a hundred years. And when you turn a hundred you do your devotion that morning and your shaky hand still has your cup of joe and maybe your favorite chair is still around, you discover something that morning. Because you can't finish plumbing even the words that are in these 66 books. So Paul is providing this humble reminder that God's wisdom and knowledge are rich. And when we don't understand something, we dare not come to the Lord and pray to Him in a way where we're like, Hey, this doesn't fit the program. Man, you don't know the program. You don't understand the program. How can you tell God something doesn't fit? I want to ask you right now. I don't even want to wait till the end of the sermon. I want to ask you right now. Do you have something in your life that if God took it away, it would confuse you and hurt you to the point of not worshiping God anymore? That's why he turns to the next piece. Look at the next piece. Now he's quoting Job 41. He said in verse 34, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who can be his counselor? Who can tell him how he should do things? But then verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has given God something such that God is like, oh yeah, I owe you that. I want to read you how it's written in Job 41 verse 11. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Just really briefly, here's what it says. Paul quotes the first line, who has given to me, this is God talking to Job after Job is like, come on, you took from me. And God's not like, I'm sorry, I'll give you back. No, who has first given to me that I should repay him? What is under the whole heaven is mine. God, you took my job. God, you took my kid. God, you took my spouse. God, you took my comfort. God, you took my health sorry, that's my health, that's my comfort, that's my kid, that's my spouse, that's my car, that's my job, that's my community, that's my grass, that's my park, that's my snow. We can never approach God and go, God, why this? In a sense, where we're asking, this is a raw deal. You're giving me a raw deal, and I can't serve a God like that. Well, you're not, we're not here to worship a God we want to worship, God is who he is and you worship him or you don't. And as you progress in your Christian life, there are things about God that will be revealed to you that catch you by surprise. Why does God give this wicked person 15 kids and I can't have any? Now that's a hard question. I'm not saying that's an easy question to live with. But we dare not, we dare not have the arrogance to take that before God and go, I deserve that. Because God will just remind us, should I repay? Here's a basic point of theology that is replete throughout all of Scripture, all of it. God never, ever owes. Ever. He cannot owe, because he can never be given anything that's not already his. Therefore, it's impossible to owe. Even if God wanted to owe, he can't owe. I hope you realize there are things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot not be God. He cannot owe. Therefore, if God owes me zero, how many times will I be able to approach God and go, hey, something's not right here? Zero. Zero. If we were really floored by the theology of Romans, we would approach God and go, why do I have breath? Why do I have one child? Why, why did my parent get to have a child? And Rather than looking at everybody else's lives and thinking about what we deserve, we look at the things that God has done and is doing, and we go, man, God didn't have to do that because he didn't owe me any of it. And this presumption of owing This presumption of owing is at the heart of the kinds of whack theologies that put you down a road of false worship. False worship. And it's proven. When that thing that disappears from your life and you give up on God, guess what you were worshiping the whole time? That thing that disappeared. That's your altar. So we come before the Lord and we say, God, I don't know if I would do election. I don't know if I would harden the Jews while Gentiles come in. Why can't they all just come in? Why hasn't your son come back yet? Why did you send Jesus this way? Why didn't you send him that way? Why did you save me and not my spouse? We have a divided house. Why this and why that? Those are hard questions. And I don't think God was upset with Job for asking. He just wanted to make sure Job wasn't asking in the wrong way, which is to presume I should get it. Let me counsel you, God, and tell you how you should run things. No, no one has ever been my counselor, God says, and no one has ever been able to repay me, and I never repay anyone. I give gifts, but I'm never... I'm never in a position of owing. Here's how he concludes it in verse 36. He concludes it in verse 36 by explaining that all things, all things, there's not any one thing in the world, in the universe, that doesn't belong to this category. For from him, God, from God, and through him, And to him are all things. All things are from him and through him and to him. That means there's not one thing in the world that's from me. I did that. No, you didn't. Look, God, look at what I did. No, you didn't. Look at what I did. Is that hard to wrap our minds around? Everything is from him and through him and to him. Now we can get everything is from him, and we can get especially this plan of salvation. Everything is through him. So he doesn't bring salvation about through anyone else except himself, Jesus, the God Man. But to him, now that I, I I'm willing, I'm willing. I don't I i do not want to say bet, <laughs> right? But. Um, I think probably most of us would go, yeah, everything is from him. We didn't develop salvation plan. We didn't enact God's salvation plan. None of us bore a cross that pays for someone else's sin. I mean, it's all from him, and it was through him, through the act and and work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. So, of course, it's from him, the salvation plan, this great mysterious salvation plan has been revealed in and through Jesus Christ but it's also to him. It's like God's big present. right? Remember, Christmas, you were wrapping presents, and you put a little tag on it, and it's from dad to the name of one of your kids, or whatever. And it's almost like Paul is saying, in the grand scheme of things, God's big present of salvation says, from God and to God. Now, you get to enjoy the present, you get to unpack the present, you get to be blessed by the present, but ultimately you are not the top going, I've received this thing and it's to me. No, we receive a benefit, but it's ultimately to God. This is why in John 17, when Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, many call it, Jesus, of course, prays for his disciples in this world. You remember, he prays, this world is going to be difficult for my disciples. Protect them, be with them. But Jesus makes it very clear, I go to the cross to glorify you, and as I go to the cross to glorify you, glorify me in it. So the cross benefits us, but the cross ultimately glorifies the Father as the Father glorifies the Son. Now why is that important? It's important because if I understand that this entire salvation plan that God is doing is not ultimately unto me, but unto Himself that he not only is the one whom it's from that he produced it, and it's through him, not me, but it's to him and not me, I don't get any glory whatsoever at all. And that's why he tells us our response, what our response should be at the end of verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen? He gets glory when, he, when we realize All things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. His glory is diminished when we shape and fashion things to where "Mm, I kind of play a role. We're kind of at the top of things. I should get this. I should get that. And we may not say it. Maybe before this sermon you didn't even realize it. But the heart it's a temptation i think for everyone is to work ourselves into that formula somewhere in that equation it's to me it's for me and when a verse bothers me something god reveals about himself bothers me something god does in my life bothers me wait a minute this equation's not working because i've inserted myself into it This doesn't mean we leave here and we're like, oh, I understand everything. We're not supposed to understand everything because it's inscrutable. But what we do understand, what God has given us access to, should position us into a place of humility and understanding that everything is from Him and through Him and to Him. And whatever happens in my life, it's part of this big, fat present that He's given to Himself. He's not taken by surprise. You remember Joseph understood God even works painful situations toward this end. So his brothers thought he was going to kill him. He's like, "I, I can't kill you. I can't exact revenge upon you because the things that you did to me that you intended for evil, God intended those very same things for good. God orchestrated all this jail time that I did. God orchestrated me being down in the pit. And I tell you, Joseph didn't come up with that on his own. That was the hand of God upon that man to say something like that. And we need God's grace to be in a place where we enjoy giving him glory, not just in the times when we feel like he's giving us what we should have. But we give him glory even in the times where things don't make sense, and we're reminded, I can't take a sheet of paper, throw it on top of God, and trace him. He's too deep for that what I am able to trace is glorious, because he's a glorious God. Let's pray. Father, we love that your word takes us to the very edge of our ability to understand things. We're thankful that uh, we continue to discover that truly you are deity. You are God. You are transcendent. We can't just figure you out. You're not... A dude, <laughs> a person that we could just kind of hang out with and figure out in a few conversations. Um, and that's good. Because we serve a God and not a person, just a just a person, just a human. Someone who's over all things. Someone who produces this great plan of salvation. And most of all, Father, we thank you that we get to be a part of it. That you and your wisdom have decided that some of that glory that you get would be through the salvation of people who deserve judgment instead. But because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, taking that wrath for us, and you applying faith to our hearts so we can grasp that by faith and enjoy resurrection life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's enough to get us through any rough day, any loss we might suffer, We have more than Job had to cling to because we know who our Redeemer is. Fathers, we close in this song of worship. May the words of this doxology in Romans 11 sink into our hearts and minds and allow it to shape how we meet the difficulties of this life. Prompt us to worship you through it all. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.